Hello, money makers and money savers. Welcome to the interview series, The Business of Business. I'm your host, Dustin Dubé, and this is Finance Fundamentals, the show where we learn how to stop working so hard for our money and learn how to make it work harder for you. This podcast is entirely based on my experiences and thoughts. I am not a financial advisor, and the thoughts and expressions you hear on this show are my own and are not reflective of my employers, past or present, nor my guests. I am not liable for investments that you make or strategies that you implement upon listening to my show. Now, back to the show. Hey friends, welcome back to Finance Fundamentals. This is the interview series, The Business of Business, where I interview unique industry experts and business owners to motivate, educate, and help you to chase your craft. This is part two of Crypto Week. I am interviewing today David Markley, who is the Director of Business Solutions at Algorand. Algorand is building new blockchain and base financial products. If you want an overview of cryptocurrency, please check out my interview with Will Watson from Tuesday. But if you want to get deeper into the space and learn more about Algorand, their solutions and their partnerships, then today I have David Markley. And I hope you all enjoy this. Thanks for joining me again. Welcome back to Finance Fundamentals. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Finance Fundamentals. I am here with David Markley, the Director of Business Solutions at Algorand. David, thank you for joining me this evening. Thanks, Dustin. Good to be here. Absolutely. Appreciate it. David and I go back a little ways. It's pretty cool to have you on the show. Always nice to see a familiar face. Yeah, likewise. I, uh, Super excited about what you're working on and uh, jumped at the opportunity to uh, one, reconnect and then two, help further the show. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think what you're doing is really cool. It's very different than probably where you thought you were going to be at this age. You, you want to give everyone a little background on you know your upbringing. David is a Mainer as well, maniac, but currently living in Boston, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm uh, I'm on the South Shore here, just outside of Boston. But with regards to the the windy path that led me to Algorand, you and I met when we were both at school. I was studying marine engineering at uh, Maine Maritime Academy. From there, got got a degree uh, and a Coast Guard license, and went offshore and worked on some of the larger vessels. Actually, worked on vessels similar to the one that got wedged in the in the very topical. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I was an engineer offshore. Worked turning wrenches in oil and gas for a couple of years. Um, decided that I didn't want to pursue that lifestyle any longer, and made a pivot and got into renewable energy. So another one of our friends, uh, he and I got into the hydroelectric uh, business. Worked on a few dams, and you know, unfortunately, the source of funding, uh, which was predominantly grant driven for the innovation and the new types of turbines we were designing that dried up and so was looking for yet again another pivot and so got out of energy altogether and got into cybersecurity and got completely lucky uh, i knew very little about computer science and the company carbon black decided to you know take a chance which i'm extremely grateful for and got to test my chops as a, a product manager was with them for a, a great run kind of their through their ipo and then through their ultimate acquisition by vmware and then at which point it was time to find the next challenge and algorand was, was the the right place at the right time and yeah that's the long winding road so energy cybersecurity blockchain what i love too is hearing non-conventional stories right you know i've had a lot of people on the show that have just had incredible journeys it's it's pretty fun to hear you could have been on one of these ships 
around the ocean and you did that for a while and you said, you know what, good, good opportunity, but just not for me. I think Maine Maritime's a great school and it offered you a variety of, you know, educational backgrounds and, and business clearly was your passion and, and it's, it's landed you a pretty solid role. So congratulations on that. Well, th- thank you. I think, I think the fun part about crypto and blockchain is that we're largely writing the narrative. So it's, it's a super exciting place to, to be at and a great company to be a part of. And it's in Boston. So that's a, a plus plus. Yeah, absolutely. That's excellent. Okay, so I would love to dive into Algorand and just kind of set the stage. Where does it fit into the crypto landscape? It's obviously much different than some of the coins that maybe people are most familiar with. So you could just kind of set that stage for us and and bring us into the landscape. Yeah, sure. So the the quick history, and then I'll get to the framing of the context here in just a second, but the quick history on Algorand is that it was founded by longtime MIT professor and Turing Award winner, Silvio McCalley. Silvio has been a pioneer in cryptography basically his entire career and continues to innovate and come up with new designs to make these systems, these blockchain-based networks faster. And as Vitalik coined it or somebody, you know, kind of uh, predated Algorand Network said that, you know, you can't solve the blockchain trilemma. You can't be completely decentralized. You can't be decentralized, scalable, and secure kind of all at the same time. Kind of innovation of Algorand is that we're able to achieve all three of those things. We're able to be fully decentralized, enabling anybody to participate. We're able to retain our security model in that regard. We're able to be extremely scalable, and we're also doing it extremely energy efficiently. And by virtue of that novel consensus and our energy efficiency at an extremely low cost. That's basically our, our claim to fame and what our underlying technology enables with regards to other layer one, so if you've heard about Bitcoin, you know it's a distributed network that's primary objective is securing Bitcoin transactions. Ethereum, you know, the innovation there was a distributed network that secures more general purpose compute to which people standardized around fungible, non-fungible tokens, security tokens, but basically different assets that can be used in these complex networks. And so Algorand's uh, another one of our great usability features is that we've created network standards that allow people to create those assets that everyone can adhere to. And I can talk more about our ecosystem and what all those players look like, but in you know the five-second version, if you support an Algorand standard asset and you're an exchange for the history of ASAs as new ones become available, as new people create them, uh, because you support that underlying standard, you can also support all of the other assets that are created using that standard. And so that's that's one of the big reasons why exchanges, custodians, market makers, the, the real users of these platforms or the people who have to interface with these platforms, they, they've really taken a liking to Algorand because we can make it easy and reduce the complexity for them. To quickly summarize, Algorand's a new layer one blockchain, not so dissimilar from Ethereum that's faster, more cost efficient, and more decentralized. Yeah, that's great. So today I looked, Algorand is number 13 on Coinbase, 3.6 million market cap. One thing that is really interesting and I think that this is where you could shed some light, is 6% APY. Why did they decide to do that with this coin? Is it to attract investors or is it just a feature that they thought would be very fungible? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So there was a, a pretty good economic analysis and obviously our, our white paper went into the founding tokenomics and our release schedule that was published by the Algorand Foundation. And, you know, if your listeners want to go off the deep end, they can they can dive in there. But the short version is, is that the way that proof of stake works is that you need algos online in order to validate transactions and validate blocks. 
And so those, you know, you can think of those algos as effectively uh, tickets in a raffle. And we spin the big raffle machine and we select a handful of them to validate. The innovative part is that we run these small committees of a thousand. Those committees are basically statistically guaranteed to be an accurate representation of every algo that's online at a given time. And we do multiple rounds of this to get to that statistical relevance. But long story short, you know, there needs to be an incentive for people to have their votes, have their participation online. Otherwise, these proof of stake networks become susceptible to different types of, of manipulation. And so in order to incentivize people to participate in the network, to help govern, to help validate different transactions, the foundation set aside this rewards pool where every time your algo participates in securing a block and proposing the next set of transactions, you earn rewards in algos. And so those rewards are calculated basically on a pro rata basis. The more algos you have online, the more entire you are to draw down from the rewards pool shakes out to be about 8% in terms of you know the comp- compound ratio of algos annually. And so that that's really the incentive mechanism of the network to get people to participate. So that's pretty interesting. I think we've seen a lot more of that recently. If you log into any exchange, you know, if you look at Coinbase, there's a, quite a few of these coming onto the market. So it's it's definitely a way to attract investors. It's it's clearly working. $1.39 today at the time of recording. It was 14 cents actually today, one year ago. So clearly there's been some some value add. There's been some growth and traction. That's pretty exciting. What, what's it been being part of that growth or how has it been rather? You know, it, it, it's funny ever since, you know, pre-public availability or pre-price discovery, for those that have followed kind of the Algorand journey, we started by doing a reverse Dutch auction, which is how we established, you know, algos into circulation and into the market and set, you know, kind of the initial tranche in the circulation. Since that day, it's really all been about building differentiated tech that people can use to achieve their ultimate business goals. And that that hasn't wavered. I mean, the price, as you mentioned, went from 14 cents to, you know, a buck, whatever you, you mentioned it is. Fortunately, you know, we, we try and put the blinders on and the way that, you know, our, our team in more broadly Algorand as a, as a whole, both the foundation and Algorand Inc. has really set the sights on enduring value and long-term value creation. And we know that issuing an asset does not make a market. So, you know, just like how we brought the algo into existence, uh, the foundation brought the algo into existence, that we knew that that wasn't the end-all be-all. It's making sure that our rails, basically, that our network infrastructure power things like USDC and make stablecoin payments faster and cheaper for people who are trying to provide essentially banking services using this new stable medium on more efficient payment rails. If you want to lend and borrow against it, we want that to be as efficient and as effective, cost-effective on Algorand as possible. If you want to issue a, a new asset, whether it's a regulated security or some other you know, digital currency that you want to represent, we want Algorand to be the network of choice because it's cheaper, faster, and, and more secure. So that, that's really what we've been focused on. And you know, the, the price the price does what it does. And we hope that by virtue of more people appreciating in the, the core network's value, that they'll find more reason to uh, look at the algo as a way of fueling their participation. Because in addition to earning rewards from participating in consensus, you also need algos to hold different assets. So there's a minimum balance requirement uh, where you need to hold a certain amount of algos in order to hold assets in your in your possession. You want to conduct transactions. You have to pay for those transactions in, in Algorand denominated fees or algo denominated fees. And so there's a bunch of utility for the algo, assuming that you get value out of the rails. And so you know making sure that those rails are as valuable in order to align long-term value creation is really what our main focus has been. 
That's really interesting. Do you happen to know where the name Algorand came from? So the um, the story that I have been told is that <laughs> Algorand is a combination of algorithm and randomness pushed together as a nod to the essence of our protocol. Silvio, in, in addition to inventing zero-knowledge proofs, has done a, a bunch of work, obviously, in all algorithmic domains, both in computer science and cryptography. And randomness or verifiable random functions is a core piece of the Algorand protocol. My understanding is that is the genesis of, of the name. Pretty interesting. I would have never thought that. That's pretty cool. Have you met Silvio? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Silvio, it's funny because I, I think, you know, like most people that we hold in extremely high regard, you, you want to imagine them as, as larger than life, you know, people that are just completely inaccessible, like, you know, your, your favorite movie star. And Silvio comes into the office every day, you know, he, he sits down and back when we were going into the office, I would, you know, sit a few rows down and we talk about coffee or, you know, his favorite place to go in Italy. And so I've had the, the pleasure of getting to meet Silvio. And I can I can assure your listeners that he's every bit as brilliant as you know you, you would believe. So it's it's a great place to work. Okay. So can you maybe walk through a few use cases or, or at least one where if I'm a holder of Algorand, how can I use it? You know, what value does it hold? Yeah. So we certainly don't view it as an investment. It's the utility, you know, it's the asset that drives the utility of the network. We mentioned it, it helps secure every transaction. It helps validate every block. Uh, it helps power every transaction. So if you want to send and receive, you know, any other asset in the network, you have to pay a transaction fee denominated in algos. You have to hold algos in your custody in order to take receipt of additional assets. So, you know, we certainly don't view it as in terms of being an investment, but to help contextualize, you know, maybe instead of taking the position of a user, let's talk about a custody provider, right? Some Somebody that you would go to, I'm sure your listeners have heard of like BitGo or Coinbase Custody, or there's a company called Copper. Those are all kind of full stack custody service providers. And so as a business, if you want to manage your treasury, you might approach Coinbase and say, hey, can you hold all of this USDC minted on Algorand in your custody under with my name associated with it? And can you also hold all of my insert wrapped Bitcoin that's issued on Algorand or, or any other asset that's issued on Algorand? Coinbase, can you hold this for me? And what Coinbase would need to do from a practical standpoint is that they would need to set up a wallet. They would have to fund that wallet with algos to achieve the minimum balance for how many uh, different assets they would need to hold. And then every time they received an instruction where, hey, send USDC over here on my behalf or send my wrapped Bitcoin to this other address, they would also need to have algos in their possession to pay for every single one of those transactions. And so that's the utility that the asset represents within the ecosystem. It's it's what basically all of the functions demand that you have is some amount of algos to pay for that utility. And then there's also the, the standards framework that I mentioned, the Algorand standard asset that allows anybody to issue fungible, non-fungible, or if you work with a partner like Securitize, regulated security, you know, digital regulated security assets on uh, on our rails as well. In order to create any of those, you again need algos in your possession in order to do that. So that's that's the real why why Algorand is it's the the lifeblood, the economy, basically. So if we talk about miners, right, you know, I see we see a lot of mining companies coming out. I mean, there's also a lot of individual people mining, uh, setting up shop in their garage and whatnot to, to mine Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a variety of other coins. Yeah. How, how is the, the landscape of algos pulled into that? This is kind of a, a key distinction between the different consensus mechanisms that we hear people talk about all the time. My personal opinion is that unless you're you know kind of deep in the weeds and evaluating uh, architectures, that consensus doesn't really need to be a, a core part of the conversation. But that said, you know, like proof of work, as an example, they have this mining concept and what those miners 
engineers are doing is they're solving very hard mathematical problems. And those problems scale based on the amount of available compute resources. And so everyone's incentivized to keep adding more and more compute in order to you know, increase the difficulty of the problem. And then if you solve that problem, your, your reward denominated in Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever the native asset is. And that's what's caused this you know, huge energy consumption of these networks. They're incentivized to keep adding more and more compute to the networks in order to extract that return denominated in Bitcoin or Ethereum. On the other side, we have a bunch, a bunch of different types of new consensus mechanisms. And the one that Algorand has created, we call pure proof of stake. And to help contextualize that, there's you know kind of three different categories that are in most common understanding. First is delegated, and so there's you know let's say five or six nodes that validate every block and every transaction. Their ratio to validating is based on how much stake any one individual has locked. And so if there's you know node operator number one and Dustin, you have whatever the native currency is of that network, you can say I would like to lock all of my Dubai coins at node <laughs> operator number one. And then the Dubai system would validate each one uh, based on the, those five nodes. Whoever has the most stake, they have the highest probability of validating the transactions in the block. And you can see why that model is attractive is that in order to solve for more scale, more energy efficient transaction flows, you can just collapse the surface area. Like I don't have to worry about thousands of nodes. I only have to worry about five. And whoever you know the group trusts the most by voting with their stake, that's the person that's going to validate. Obviously, that's a huge trade-off on decentralization. And so for people that either have networks where conflicts of interest start to emerge because one node is Visa, another node is MasterCard, and the third one is PayPal or whoever, you could see why each one of them is might be incentivized to falsify the other's transactions, right? If MasterCard's transactions are all 10% more expensive because Visa is the one that's uh, validating or vice versa, you know, the, the incentives start to misalign in that network. And so that, that's a little bit of the trade-off that you make when you do something like delegated. There's another one called bonded. Same principle, but instead of locking your stake at a particular node, vote with your dollars. And so each one of the nodes has to post like a million bucks so to speak. This obviously can be economically gamed because if I have a transaction that's over a million dollars, that node is more likely to falsify that transaction, reroute the money to them. And if they get slashed, which they would lose their million dollars for being false, but they're $9 million richer, that, that model has kind of an upper limit in terms of what, what are the nodes willing to, to stake or, or bond as they, uh, as they call it. And so insert Algorand, and this goes back to the rewards um, mechanism that we talked about, why incentive we want people to lock their stake and have it participate in the network. We call this pure proof of stake really is meant to remove the problem. So you, you don't have a small subset, anyone can participate. That's thanks to our very compact and very efficient consensus algorithm. So you can run Algorand on a Raspberry Pi or like an IoT device. And so you can really expand the universe of people that can participate in the network. And that's thanks to the innovations that Silvio and team have, have put into the core protocol. And then the other side is th the idea of bonded and slashing and, you know, kind of reprimanding people for falsifying transactions. That's removed altogether because by putting your, your dollars to work on chain, you earn your rate for participating. And by participating, you're only increasing the security of the network. And so that, that's kind of the, the short version of uh, how pure proof of stake differentiates from all other proof of stake flavors and from proof of work. Wow. Yeah, that, that's a lot. I think for some of the listeners, this 
might be a little complex. If you had to explain what proof of stake is in a very simplistic manner, if there's some type of metaphor maybe that you use for for folks on the street. The way I explain proof of stake is that anybody can uh, arrive. They can basically vote with their dollars and voting in our context is securing the network. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so let's let's reel it back a little and talk about your role specifically at Algorand. Director of Business Solutions, what exactly do you do on a day-to-day basis? I think an interesting metaphor, you know, the team at Algorand, we're really building and attempting to evangelize infrastructure at the end of the day. And so take Amazon Web Services as an example, right? Our, our sell, our, our pitch really of why our infrastructure over anybody else is not so dissimilar from Amazon trying to convince Netflix to build Netflix on Amazon or you know versus building it on Google or otherwise right and so really what our job is is to help any business, any individual, any developer understand the intrinsic benefits of using our platform. And then from there, because as we mentioned earlier, you know, issuing an asset does not make a market, uh, it's really about connecting all of the players together. And so what do I mean by that? So you create the Dubai coin on Algorand. Well, people who want to be buyers and sellers of the Dubai coin, they need a a way of holding and accessing those assets, right? So they need a wallet or they need a custody provider. And so we've curated who we believe to be some of the best in the industry so that you have, um, you know, kind of the, the best in class options for custody. We've done the same with exchange partners. So now that you can hold this asset, uh, you want to go find somebody that's interested in buying it from you, or you want to find a venue where you can acquire it for or, you know, maybe stable coins that you hold in custody. And so we've worked with companies like Coinbase, Huobi, Binance, you know, there's about 70 different exchanges globally that support the algo and our ecosystem more broadly. And then of, of course, the kind of last component piece of the puzzle here is all about uh, tax and compliance. And so is my asset being issued in a legal way? How do I pay taxes on my asset at the end of the year? How do I do reporting if I'm a business trying to conduct uh, KYC AML for people that are transacting with these different assets? And so we've partnered with, again, Best in Breed in each one of those. And so my, my role is uh, finding the, the companies that you know, we want to become a part of our ecosystem and our network, helping them up the algorithm learning curve as fast as humanly possible working with them once they have their product and application built to connect to the rest of the ecosystem to fundamentally match um, and you know fulfill their their value prop. Do you have an estimate of how many companies are currently using the algo? Yeah, so there are about 550 companies um, that we're aware of. So of course, one of the benefits of Algorand being public and permissionless like Ethereum is that anybody can come build on it. Any any developer, any company, any individual can create an asset, can start building these different pro- DeFi protocols or otherwise. But for the companies that we've helped over the past 24 months, we're just north of you know, 550, 600 companies now that have interfaced with the Algorand network in some way, shape or form. So they either provide dev tools uh, like node management services, or they provide SDKs for you to build and integrate into maybe your off-chain infrastructure and architecture, or they're the market participants that I just talked about, whether custodians, exchanges, or otherwise. When these companies approach you, or, or you approach them rather, to, to have this conversation about the, the use case of the algo and maybe getting them on board, what's the maturity of them? Are there some that are pretty far along, they have a really strong understanding of this? And are there some that really need some help to, to kind of fill the gap? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so certainly one of the things that we 
prioritize and, and look at in terms of opportunities is their blockchain familiarity sure. and how how in, impactful, but not not to Algorand, but how impactful the use case to their business will ultimately be if it's implemented. And so one of the, you know, kind of the, the arts of working through infrastructure is we need to be able to articulate the benefit in, in their terms, right? Uh, understanding, you know, their cost profiles, understanding their business and their company at a level where we can say, ah, okay, if you did this on Algorand, you would reduce settlement times from T plus two to T plus four seconds. And so in that scenario, you can settle this transaction, which you've historically had to wait and post and have capital calls for two days. You can put all that capital immediately to work within the new venue you that you've moved your money to. Or if it's somebody who, because you use Algorand's escrow and atomic transfer capability, you can say with 100% certainty that this individual is can be made whole on, on this agreement that you've entered into, right? Because they have their assets locked, it's being secured by a smart contract. There's no light risk so to speak, uh, of entering into this because they've already posted the collateral. And oh, by the way, you didn't need a third party to facilitate that transaction. It all happened on chain. They locked it in an escrow while the transaction or the off-chain situation played out. And that that applies basically anywhere money changes hands, right? So in insurance, in obviously in finance, in healthcare payments, in, in all sorts of different industries, we really try hard to put ourselves in their shoes so we can talk about what this infrastructure really enables these companies to achieve. So as far as the company itself, is it headquartered in Boston or is that just one of their locations? Yeah, so Algorand Inc., they, and it's probably worthwhile to just give the 30 seconds on this. There's been two founding entities that have been with the network since pre-network creation, basically. There's the Algorand Foundation, which is a nonprofit based in Singapore. They are the entity that brought the algo into existence. So they hosted the first reverse Dutch auction that brought the algo to, to the world. And then they've been the ones really leading the, the algo liquidity efforts and the algo market, you know, deeper market efforts. And then on the other side of that, there's Algorand Inc., which is headquartered here in Boston. We are the company that was contracted by the Algorand Foundation to build the core consensus protocol. So on our team, we've got many of the engineers that have been with Silvio since his days at MIT. And we've also brought in the broader business team led by Steve Kokinos, former CEO of Blade Logic and Hughes, and then also Sean Ford, former CMO of Logmean, uh, another good oh, Boston-based company. Yeah. Very cool. What is the uh, staff in Boston? Is it a relatively large office? Yeah. So uh, since COVID, reduced number of people in office. The last update that I got is, you know, we were closing in on 80 employees mm -hmm. and about 50 or 60 of them, I believe, were, were located here in the Boston office. You know, hope, hopefully we can get back to that as the world returns to the new normal. Yeah. Okay. So as far as you personally, did you have a bullish appeal or, or thought of crypto early on? Or is this something that you kind of grew to, to like and admire as you advanced in your business career? I'd say um, I got introduced to Bitcoin when I was actually working renewable energy. We actually drafted a business plan that is opposed to selling power to the local municipality. We were actually just going to mine Bitcoin at you know that time back in 2016, 2017. The proformas were such and the volatility was such that it was really hard to make sure. a sound business case for it. Obviously, hindsight being 2020, that probably would have been the most lucrative thing I could have done. That, that's really when I, I got introduced to it. I 
have to admit, it was hard to see what the long-term utility of Bitcoin was going to be in the moment. However, it certainly cemented its place as not only the, you know, quote unquote, reserve currency of crypto, but is, you know, a legitimate asset class in and of itself. And mm -hmm. the fact that it's, you know, uh, the ticker symbol shows up on CNBC every morning is, is still kind of uh, a strange thing to watch. So I'd say I've been loosely following crypto, uh, Bitcoin specifically for, you know, several years, really got more interested while I was at Carbon Black and started to really look into how, as uh, everyone talks about it, becoming the, the second part of the internet, where the internet allowed us to transfer information freely and blockchain allows us to transfer value freely. When you really start peeling the onion back and you look at what DeFi protocols represent, it really is the movement of the, the barrier to entry that historically the, the bar has just been so high for everyday consumers to gain access to. And the fact that we can now enter into lending, borrowing agreements, we can take derivative positions, we can fractionalize at effectively zero cost. It's not a blip on the radar, like that's a fundamental change in the, the infrastructure that we use every day. And then if you look at you know, the next layer down, where people like Balancer and Uniswap are innovating on the algorithms to make automated market making more efficient. It's wild. Like it, it's, yeah. it's just crazy to think traditional market makers retain the edge to date, but it, it's not a far cry to think that not only will the, the masses be able to pool and create larger capital structures than traditional centralized market makers have been able to, but it'll actually be more efficient and the benefactors will be those that put their capital to work. And that's open to anybody. I mean, you don't need to go raise you know, 500 million to back stock and equities trading anymore, right? Like you could post a dollar if you wanted to. And it, it's that innovation where when you, you take a pulse on what this really represents and what we're building and working towards, like, okay, like this is a trend that it, it's going to be too expensive if I don't pay attention. That's that's when I really bought in. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I, I've got a lot of people that I've talked to about this and it is amazing. I actually, I know somebody here in Charlotte and their family is back in Ghana and they used to Western Mutual money over there and with the fees and the time delays, I mean, yeah. you're, look, you're looking at all of these uh, slows and, and it's, it's very expensive. And now they actually take, they run a small business, they take all of their earnings that they intended to send back home anyway, and they just transfer them over to Bitcoin and send them to their family. And it's, it's amazing that we're at a place where that can happen. Now, that's obviously not the primary use case of it, but it is, it's a use case in itself where we can now instantaneously send money all across the world and it's without a regulatory body holding it. I know that makes a few people uneasy, but it is pretty comforting when you see some of the big players starting to jump in. You know, we saw these large hedge funds and these large financial institutions three, four years ago forbidding their employees from partaking. In fact, if you worked at some of these hedge funds and you were partaking, you probably were going to see the door. And now some of them are getting involved pretty aggressively, you know, not just with Bitcoin, but with a variety of coins. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because every year it feels like within the industry, we're, we're collectively saying it's just the tip of the iceberg. We're just getting started. <laughs> and then this whole wave of innovations hit and, and, you know, new value, new corridors, reduced price structures. And then the next year it's, oh, we're just getting started. Right. And, and I mean, you look at what Tether and Circle represent now in collective market cap. I mean, Circle was up over 14 billion or something like that the other day when I checked. Tether is even larger. It, it, it's just, it's crazy to think about the amount of 
value that's entered the space. And then the story is like the one you just shared where we were powering cross-border payments through Bitcoin. And imagine the day that they loaded up on Bitcoin to send it over. And then Elon announced that he was getting involved. Not only did you just facilitate your cross-border payment at a fraction of the cost, but you also just had a massive appreciation in your underlying sure. holdings, right? I read an interesting piece the other day that said, corporate treasuries buying Bitcoin isn't a bet on Bitcoin going to the moon. It's a hedge against having to pay all of their employees in Bitcoin in the future. Yeah, um, And so it's interesting when you, when you think about in those terms that as inflation increases globally, as continues to be, you know, monetary policy that forces very strange, I mean, the, the lira had like a 14% drop in it the other day or, or something to that, that effect. And so, yeah, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense, right? Like having an asset that has wild upside and relative staying power on a longer time horizon, like starts to make sense. Yeah. And I, I, I do think one day crypto as a whole will not be as volatile as it is right now. You know, like you said, we're just at the tip of the iceberg. And quite frankly, we'll probably be at the tip of the iceberg for most of our lives. It has a long road ahead of it. But if you look at the US dollar or really any currency for the most part, there's some stability there. It, it'll rise and fall throughout the year. But for the most part, you're not going to see drastic fluctuations, except in hyperinflationary countries such as you know Venezuela. The nice thing about cryptocurrency is it is pretty much immune to a lot of those global events. So I think that it's really becoming a global phenomenon. And there's there's a lot of use that we haven't even touched yet. And it's, it's pretty exciting that you're part of it. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I'd love to know what are the, the largest competitors that you as a corporation view in your scope? It's, that's a great question. I mean, they, they come in a bunch of different shapes and sizes, right? I mean, so there's obvious comparison between Algorand and Ethereum. Ethereum's where all where all of the action is, quote unquote, it's where all the developers are, it's where all the you know kind of innovation is happening. For better or worse, like Ethereum has done extremely well. In turn, it means that its fee structure is through the roof right now, which means that it's priced a lot of use cases out of the market. And that's where new innovative layer ones like Algorand can can fill a need and where we've been actively filling a role. And then, you know, that gets into layer ones versus layer ones. What's interesting about that conversation though is that you know the sentiment in the market right now is that each one of these kind of Ethereum challengers, if you will, is going to start to formulate its own sort of ethos. It's going to start to curate to a specific type of marketplace. And I think there's a collective realization that these networks when formed have immense staying power because there is relatively high switching costs to lift and shift your entire ecosystem, bring all of your custodians, bring all of your exchanges, bring all of your users with you to this net new platform adapt new standards, potentially learn a new programming language. And so each one has started to, you know, plant their flag in the ground in terms of what what set of users, what ethos, what what community they want to serve. And so it's interesting to see that start to take shape and how, how that's influencing a lot of the interoperability conversations and how bridges work between each one of these networks in order to facilitate, you know, cross-chain purchases. But, you know, by and large, I say those are the two groups that we get compared to the most. However, I think outside of the crypto world, like the biggest barrier is really getting access to all you know the traditional assets and all of the world's value collectively the the crypto space is over a trillion dollars in market cap which is very exciting but as many people have pointed out it really just represents one apple right it's it's one company uh, across the entire sea and and so 
how do we collectively grow the pie? You, know, you could say it's by innovating and really figuring out how to grow the current crypto value. But I think more interesting and, and more important is how do we bring traditional financial assets and value into this new world? And so, you know, that that to me has its own set of, right, in every industry, there's going to be cemented players that have made money off of the infrastructure that you can now make more efficient. And so then it raises the question, you know, do you partner? How do those partnerships work? What's the go-to-market benefits or trade-offs? of each one of those. And so to me, that's that's where I spend a lot of my time is thinking about how, how do we get to that traditional value? Where is it currently locked? What's the best way to migrate it into these new network protocols so that we can collectively grow and get beyond just, you know, Apple's market share and, you know, hopefully take over NASDAQ or, you know, something equivalent to the London Stock Exchange and their, you know, all their aggregate companies. So that, that's that's where I spend a lot of time. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that, like you say, there is a barrier to entry, right? You have to have a, a currency, whether it's the US dollar or your, your native currency, in order to buy this, right? You have to be part of an exchange. You know that for some folks, it's even difficult to get approved to an exchange like Coinbase. You know, you have to yep. provide a driver's license. And there are some barriers to entry before just signing up for a Robinhood account and <laughs> buying a, a fraction of Apple, right? Talk about how it's attracting people from more traditional finance and IT backgrounds. You look at college education and how that's probably going to need to change. You know, we start talking about finance courses, Pearson and McGraw-Hill and all these textbook companies are going to have to start bringing crypto into the fold. And you're probably going to have to have that in finance 201 classes just to, to bring people up to speed because it is becoming a significant part of the market the way that we talked about gold. And I think that this is going to become something that will become part of our curriculum in the future. Yeah. I If it isn't part of your curriculum already, it feels like you're already behind the eight ball. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've been, uh, my, my job has been to understand and dig into this space for the last few years. And I still feel like I'm learning about mm -hmm. different innovations every day. How, how can we decentralize, automate, and come up with a governance structure to recreate the, the Fed? I mean, those are things that people are actively working on and thinking on, and they're trying to quantify it in terms of algorithms, right? And there's some really elegant designs out there um, that people like the Bank of International Settlement have proposed as, as ways of you know, regulating monetary supply algorithmically. There's also very nuanced approaches where you can have it put to all sorts of governance tokens and votes and hierarchies that mirror like a similar structure. And then you can programmatically put in term limits so that you, know, you hold an asset that entitles you to a particular Senate seat as an example, but that asset is automatically revoked and then it's handed out to whoever the vote is and the vote's on chain. So it's completely transparent. I mean, there, there's all sorts of crazy innovative ideas that people are working on right now, which is why if all you've heard about is Bitcoin today, like, and, and you're not learning about it in school and you're not being exposed to this tech and, and what people are working on, you, you got to figure out how to educate yourself outside of, you know, the textbook that, that you were assigned yeah. to read. What's the best way to get an idea of, let's say, I don't know, the top 15, 20 coins? Should we be reading white papers? Should we be checking out company websites? You know, what what is the best way to, to educate yourself on what's going on in the space of crypto? Yeah, that's a great <laughs> question. Honestly, I would do yourself a favor and sign up for Masari Pro and go into their website. They've got an army of analysts uh, that have done deep dives on every topic in the industry. They've also got for the projects that they work closely with kind of full 
analysis and write-ups on you know the benefits, the design theories, the trade-offs. And so if you want to get really into consensus and layer one protocols like Algorand, you can compare us against every other, you know, kind of next generation layer one blockchain. If you want to get really into DeFi protocols and look at things like DEXs or AMMs and understand the difference in the nuance between how they achieve matching and you know what what does it mean to create a liquidity pool and receive a governance token or an LP token and be entitled to the revenue or the profits that get thrown off by that pool. And then you can use that token and actually put it into a lending borrowing and get a line of credit out against that to put back into the pool to get more LP tokens. Like the uh, amount of you know good research that Masari has done, it's a gold mine. And so for what it's worth, I'm not getting paid to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to put it out there, but I, I use their tool daily. I mean, anytime I want to go deep on a topic, I, Masari is my first stop. Yeah, I'll put the link in the description. I think that's a great tool. There are likely some people listening that maybe want to do a career shift or possibly are, are university students. How do you even go about getting a job at one of these crypto companies, right? You know, this is just such a new space. Uh, is this happenstance? Did you come across the role and it just seemed interesting to you? Yeah, I, I mean, fortunately, age old adage holds true for me is that it's all about who you know. Um, yeah. And so I happen to know, you know, one of the early employees at Algorand um, and been following it. And when the opportunity arose, I, I jumped on it. But in terms of if I was to think about where in the, the world of crypto to end up, first, I, I'd certainly go go to Masari's website and just get a, a sense of what do all these different categories mean. That way you can start to um, zero in on, you know, what problems are they really trying to solve in the space? Does that problem resonate with me, my background? And can I, you know, do I have a way of adding value either in product design or usability or go to market strategy or BD? And then from there, the other thing that is pretty intrinsic in every crypto project is, you know, what are the incentive mechanisms? And so, how does this project and its asset, you know, do do well, right? And what is what is what do they define do well as? You might find that you'll you'll come across some surprising answers, which of course can help you better position yourself when you're interviewing. Pretty much every major project at this point has a jobs board. We're working on an Algorand ecosystem jobs aggregator. So every company of the you know 550 that connect Algorand's rails, if any one of them is looking for a job, um, we're looking at aggregating it for you know kind of every job with in Algorand's network. So, you know, ho hopefully tools like that will be useful for, for those that are hopeful in the space. Yeah, it's the uh, the indeed of crypto. Uh, so if we, if we look at Algorand today, you know, what do you expect to see for Algorand in, I don't know, let's say three to five years? Well, it, it's funny. Somebody just recently told me that you always overestimate what you can do in five, underestimate what you can do in one, one two, okay, or three. Sure. So if I had to think about where Algorand will be in three years, so over the past two years, we went from basically having $60 million on chain. That was kind of the initial seed pool that the foundation closed that auction. To date, we're closing in on about $5 billion worth of value represented on chain. So, you know, three to five years playing that out, hopefully we're at 10 billion, you know, $20 billion on chain. And what does that on-chain value look like? I think a large portion of it is represented in stable coins because those are the, you know, the dollar infrastructure equivalent of crypto rails. So we probably have a deep market for several different stable coins on our platform and it's fueling a lot of the DeFi infrastructure that I talked about. So enabling people to basically access 
banking-like services at zero to little cost. And it can be peer-to-peer, it can be institution to institution. So it can be B2B, B2B to C, C to C, whatever format you um, you want, because it'll be decentralized. And so as long as there's two matching participants, it can put the capital to work or it can facilitate the trade or it can you know, close the position. Yeah. If I, if I had to estimate, you know, that that's our, our real goal and focus is increase the value on chain, but do that by increasing the value to users. And so hopefully more people are able to access financial services uh, using Algorand. Excellent. Okay. So as an asset class, if we look at Algorand, we see that Ethereum 2.0 is coming up. I know you said Ethereum is a kind of a a competitor in a way. How do you think 2.0 is going to maybe impact the usability of Algorand or maybe the competitiveness, if at all? And, And will it cause a little rife in the market? So we'll we'll see. I mean, it, it's certainly been highly anticipated for quite some time. We're excited, and we view it as certainly as a nod to the, the technical decisions that we've made. That you know, 2.0 is going to be proof of stake, being one of the you know first proof of stake chains to launch and be live with Touchwood. No downtime. Every transaction has been settled within the parameters in which we you know set out to. It's fully decentralized. We're, we're up over 6,000 nodes globally distributed. I think we've really fulfilled on all of the promises that Ethereum 2.0 represents. You know, the last piece for us is making it as easy as possible for today's existing Ethereum developers to lift and shift or rewrite, you know, their applications on Algorand. And obviously where Ethereum's, you know, main pull is, is that that's where the ecosystem is, right? And so it has a lot of staying power, it has a lot of mind share. You know, they're trying to entrench that by offering rewards in, in incentives, yeah. you know, ahead of the, the release going out to get people bought into migrating. But all, all that said, like, I think Ethereum 2 and Ethereum 1 are actually both going to continue to exist for the foreseeable future. I think they're going to, you know, cater to the early adopter, innovative, more decentralized development style that Ethereum, you know, really pioneered. And then I think there will be obvious connection points between 2.0 and Algorand, where if you want to interact with one of the institutions that we've brought online, uh, you can come to us. And if you want to move your assets and transact in, you know, their new world, you can, you can do that as well. So that's the way, you know, we really think about it. Yeah, that's a good view on it. One thing that I think is kind of interesting when it comes to crypto is we haven't seen a lot of M&A activity. You know, if you think about the the public markets, you know, Apple buys competitors, they buy small companies that can benefit them. Yeah, we haven't seen a ton of that yet in crypto. Is that something that you think we'll see more of in the next, you know, four or five years? So the stage is certainly set. I, I think if I had to make a prediction on how it plays out, I would look at all of the centralized infrastructure providers as kind of the first natural foray for all of the legacy institutions to get in. And there's some, you know, evidence of that already. PayPal acquired Curve, which is a custodian, you know, BNY and SVB made a big equity investment in Fireblocks. They also provide, you know, custody technology. And so I, I think for successful infrastructure platforms, people that, you know, node management as a service, it's very rational to think that a large cloud provider is going to come along and start acquiring them because they want to make it more natively available. 
those node managers have largely used the tools that the cloud providers already use today or already published. So yeah, I'd say keep an eye on infrastructure. There's there's probably going to be the first wave of acquisitions there, custody exchange, and then developer tooling and developer infrastructure. From there, it becomes a little less clear. I actually think that the larger players will become consumers of the decentralized protocols, but it won't be without the decentralized protocols updating to have more tools and more controls that regulated entities need. And so if we're talking about DeFi, it's less about, and, and you know the protocols that create DeFi, I think it's less about M&A and I think it's more about the evolution of those protocols. And the benefit there will be in you know the LP tokens or the governance tokens that those DeFi protocols issue. And once somebody like insert your favorite financial institution here, once they commit to lending and borrowing in a peer-to-peer format, either with other institutions or direct to consumer using makers DAO's infrastructure, right? I mean, that's that's going to set the maker governance token through the roof. Now, that, I, I don't think that specific example is going to play out without some changes to, you know, the, the core protocol, but something like that, you know, I think that's how the value capture mechanism will, will eventually show up. And they don't have a meaningful control in place to prevent it from, you know, basically ensuring that it, it happens. Um, so we're going to do something a little different. This is a, a segment of my show I called bullish or bearish. I'm going to take a little bit of a, a break from some of the crypto bits. And we're just going to talk about a variety of things. And I just want your personal perspective on them. And, you know, if you say you're bullish, if you think it's good, bearish, if you think it's bad. And, you know, if you're somewhere in the middle, well, hey, we can have a conversation about it. Try not to pass. We're just having fun. Let's talk about the new investing platforms. Robinhood, Ameritrade, Webull. Are you bullish or bearish on those? Some point that they are less regulated and they've done some dicey things in the past, but it does bring a new presentation of retail investors to the stock market. Yeah, I mean, bullish, right? But like, I don't view them as innovative market participants. I I view them as innovative distribution channels for traditional products, right? And so much the same way that like Neo banks aren't reinventing finance. They're just creating more efficient distribution channels. I, I think Robinhood at all fall into that category. And I think in a longer term time horizon, like they just all end up becoming neo banks anyways, especially mm-hmm. when they start adopting more crypto-based protocols, because then they can offer all these services at effectively no cost. So I'm, I'm super bullish. Let's talk about student debt. Do you think that's going to get better? Do you think people are going to make more calculated decisions on the universities that they attend based on scholarship funding and, you know, maybe some schools providing different alternatives? Or do you think it's going to be status quo until it just blows up worse than it already has? I haven't done any serious analysis on this topic to have a well-formed opinion. And so that's my caveat to say that I think it's probably reasonable to assume that you can get an equivalent education anywhere in the country at a fraction of the cost that most people pay. And it was surprising to me that like out of the whole Varsity Blues scandal, that the institutions weren't found more at fault. And if anything, because no press is bad press, I think it made it even more prestigious. Like, oh, look at what these people are willing to endure and risk. You know, the, the rich and famous spend $500,000 to get into USC or, you know, whatever, Stanford. I got to get in there, right? Because I might be able to run into one of them or whatever your, you know, illusion is about why this place is so valuable. And then on the backside of that, like those places also happen to have been very successful in having founders who are titans of industry, 
that you know they get to promote their their college network right and so those two factors where extremely selective very high profile everybody's competing it to get into the exact same schools allows them to just basically charge you know unabated so i think it probably gets worse because most people just want to go to one of those schools and that means the price will only increase because it's just a function of supply and demand and people will continue to take out egregious loans where you could get the exact same education more or less. And again, very unqualified opinion. I have not done any sort of analysis on whether or not, you know, your local community college can compare to a Stanford. (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, But like, you know, all all things being relatively equal, like I have to imagine that there is some other school that will give you the same education at close to no cost. I think the problem gets worse. I guess I'm bullish on the problem getting worse. Does that make me bearish? Yeah, I, I agree with you in the short term. I want to think that the generation at play today that has these hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans upon graduation will think twice when their children get to the age of of attending college. Who knows what university education is going to look like at that point? I think education is going to change a lot too. But unfortunately, actually, I watched a Netflix documentary recently about the the whole Varsity Blues thing. And it it is interesting how there is this perception for elite schools. You know, I actually, I went to a small private school in Maine. It really wasn't an overly expensive school. I think it's like the third most inexpensive private school in all of New England. I started at a big four and the first day I was there, a guy sitting at my table said, he was in $120,000 of debt and he went to Cornell and we had the same job. So sure, I, I have to assume that he probably got a lot of experience I didn't because he went to Cornell. But it makes me wonder, you know, was that worth it to essentially end up at the same role? I'm a huge advocate of the boot camp courses that General Assembly et al. have pioneered. I mean, typically they want, you know, some sort of entry level degree. But I've met a ton of people that, you know, through throughout the entire Boston tech ecosystem that have taken one of those boot camps or kind of transitionary courses that are offered, you know, they're everywhere now. There's all sorts of different people that are publishing them. They've all spoken extremely highly, and most of them have a full money guarantee if you don't get placed in in the industry. And so, one, like, what does that tell you? One, there's a huge demand for people yeah. with very specific skill sets in tech right now. Two, on a eight to sixteen week time period, most people can gain the prerequisite skill sets to get into an entry level position at any major tech company. So much so that they guarantee it, or they give you your money back. Right? Not every one of them offers that guarantee, but it, it just it's a signal that. That huge demand. You don't need a four-year education to be able to pre- perform the basic skill set. You really need about 16 weeks. And so depending on what you're optimizing for, like two years of community college associates and then an eight-week boot camp to get into the industry that's only going to continue to grow in our the rest of our lifetime, tech. If I, if I told you you only had you know a fixed amount of dollars to spend on your education, it seems like a very rational way of, of solving the problem. Yeah. I'm also one for thinking that you know if somebody's going into a medical field or something very technical, they're probably, probably take an eight-week boot camp. Probably yep. not for you. That's probably not the right course. But quite frankly, with every job I've had since exiting school, probably could have done it without going to college for five years. So (laughs) there's that too. So yeah, I kind of go back and forth on it. I had a great experience. I had a lot of cool life experiences. 
but there was a lot that I probably could have gone without. And, and, and if I could go back, maybe I should have taken those at a community college over the summer, you know, just to save a little money and, and you know, start to think about that, that long-term investment that you're making. Okay. The last one, and this is, this one's kind of interesting to me. Let's, let's bring Tesla back into the play. Are you bullish on them as a company or do you think they lost because they had first mover advantage? Ooh, well, if I had the money, <laughs> I would definitely go buy one yeah. because I think they're super cool. So from a consumer perspective, they've definitely sold me on the in the depth of the consumer experience, right? I mean, you're not just buying a car. Establish a really strong brand, their tech. I mean, you buy a new car from any other dealer today and it's like you're driving something with 2008 technology and yeah. you know, 2010 <laughs> maybe if you're lucky, right? Where you sit in a Tesla and you're like, this is basically the Apple experience of if Apple made a car. Now I know Apple's getting into the game. That's like a, a big, you know, foreshadowed event. But on the whole, like I'm super bullish Tesla. Like I, I think... Most people view them as a car company. I think if you value them as a data company, they're extremely, frame it this way, they've been trending in the more data-friendly direction as of late, as opposed to historically how they've been compared against other auto manufacturers. So yeah, I'm, I'm stream, extremely bullish on the data that they have, um, the brand that they've built, and just their ability to get into, I mean, they're rolling out this truck, which like, We'll see how well it does in Texas because that's like the, yeah. one of the largest key markets, but it's differentiated. It's unique. Comes with like an ATV that you can, you know, drive into the back of it and charge it while you're doing whatever the heck it is you're doing in that crazy thing. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know. Like that, that's probably going to do really well for them. And it looks like Elon and his inevitable genius, like optimized for making the manufacturing process as easy as possible because it's just a bunch of sharp corners. And so independent of what you think about the design, it's probably the most cost-efficient truck to manufacture or right up there. And so it'll be a huge profit center for the you know people that decided to get into the cyber truck. And yeah, I'm, I'm bullish. Yeah. And I think that the other thing too, right? At times, Elon can probably be perceived as a little irrational. You know, he does all kinds of crazy things on the internet. You know, he's seen tweeting things at 2 a.m. that probably could go without. But if you take that away and you do respect the genius that he has at hand, you know, between Tesla, SpaceX, and Tesla as a whole too, right? You know, they're the first car company to really be perceived as a tech company or a data company, like you say. And it's more about just the car. You, you buy the charger for your garage. You buy a battery every, you know, X amount of years. They have a lot of repeat business coming in. You know, people want these new models and the tech is very innovative, right? And it's funny, I remember a few years ago, a guy got pulled over because a police officer thought he was playing on an iPad when it was in reality, it's part of his car. And I think it's it's changing the way that we think about what a car company can be. I know Volkswagen's starting to get into the game. I know that there's a lot of car companies that are starting to get into the game. Time will tell. It's going to become a saturated market. Have they established a strong enough brand to hold everybody? Probably not. But they have definitely had that first mover advantage and They've definitely changed the way that people think about cars. What seemed impossible a decade ago is, I mean, I see Teslas every day now. Funny, a, a friend of mine actually just bought a house here in Charlotte and, and you know, they're looking through the house and they go check out the garage and there's a Tesla charger in there. They're like, oh, well, guess we'll have to get a Tesla now. But it is it is funny how it's becoming you know, part of our, our ecosystem and you know, we see it every day. Switching gears a little bit, if you could leave the listeners with just one tidbit of information, whether it's just about crypto or about Algorand, what is something that they need to be thinking about here is as you know this this process and the world of crypto continues the one thing 
that I would advise all the listeners to key into or pay attention to is the innovation that's occurring. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to be an active participant, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of good justification for not owning crypto as an asset class. Certainly, if it's the only investment you're making, I highly advise, you know, you look at alternatives <laughs> before you think you're... You know, Diversification, yes. That's right, that's right. But you shouldn't be unaware of the fundamental developments that are happening because much like how you know if you were sitting idle for a couple decades and then all of a sudden you saw this name Amazon trade be like what the heck's that and now you're playing super catch up the same thing's happening in crypto right now where you know Coinbase is about to go public and may, yeah maybe you get it like it's a, a venue where you can buy different assets and to the west that's largely what crypto is but take a look at more DeFi protocols. You're looking for a primer, go to Masari, go to DeFiPulse.io, I think. I think that's what tracks all of the you know assets locked in smart contracts. Understand what the different use cases are. And that'll that'll really start to help you form an opinion on if I'm going to own this asset class, why do I want to own it? Which players do I think are going to have enduring value? And then also the different ways. Like you don't have to have direct crypto exposure. You can participate in liquidity pools like we talked about earlier. You can put your capital to work and people can borrow against it. And there's people who are making 30% on their money right now, just doing that, like not taking long crypto positions, but just lending and borrowing. Uh, so indirectly, you know, through derivatives, taking right. crypto positions. But once you start to educate yourself about what's actually happening in the space, and then obviously, of course, what Algorand's doing, you can just have a, a better formed opinion about what you're buying. I mean, you, you wouldn't buy stocks without knowing what the company makes, right? And so that, that would be my recommendation to everybody who's listening. Yeah, that's great. I think being informed in what you're investing in is is like a key rule that I hold to heart. So I think that for anyone that's, that's buying in, you know, don't just blindly buy cryptocurrency because you see that there's a new asset class out there or something new that you've never heard of. Do your research, become educated and become a smart investor. All right. I appreciate it. I will put your notes in the description, contact information, link to the Algorand website. If anyone has questions directly for David, please reach out to him. And otherwise, I appreciate you coming on Finance Fundamentals. Thanks, Dustin. Appreciate you having me. And uh, thank you all for listening. This was another great interview right here on the Business of Business Finance Fundamentals podcast interview series. If you'd like to learn more about Algorand and chat with David Margley, I will leave some of his information in the description for you to reach out and learn more. Cryptocurrency is not a space where it can all be learned in one day, so please don't feel overwhelmed. There is a lot to learn in the space. And having people like Will from Tuesday and David on Thursday, it is a great way to get an overview of the space and better understand blockchain and the business solutions at Algorand. If you'd like to learn more, please reach out to David. Otherwise, join me next week for more interviews and more exciting educational topics. Together, we'll own that road to financial freedom, and I'm really glad you're joining me for it. I want to hear from you. Have a topic you'd like discussed? A suggestion? You can contact me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, email, and more. Check out the description for my link tree. I look forward to hearing from you. The show is written and edited by me. Produced and edited by Daniel Rue. A lot of work goes into these episodes, and we really hope you enjoyed them.